You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver, Moritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where each week... We take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For long-term listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And if you are new to the show, our hope is that today's episode will trigger some curiosity to check out the back catalogue of all of the past episodes that you may have missed. Rob Mortz, great to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Hey guys, hey Niels, hey Rob. Doing fine. How are you? Yeah, doing pretty well in England here, nice and sunny, the, the slowly, gradually getting back to normal, hopefully. Yes, no, yep. absolutely. Speaking about normal, I'm going to do something a little bit different, though, this week in terms of my kind of little bit of a market wrap, not because I didn't find anything interesting uh, this week, but, you know, I couldn't help this morning. So I, every week I do a, like a little write-up for my clients and, and kind of potential clients. And when I was sitting doing it this morning, there's just this song that kept spinning in my head this morning, and that's this Marvin Gaye song, you know, What's Going On? And, you know, when I wrote it, it wasn't meant to be any kind of political statement, um, because to me at least, it kind of, kind of something you can apply, not just to what's going on in America at the moment, but also what we see in the kind of geopolitical stage around the world, and, and also what's going on in the financial markets. But what was really interesting to me is that much of what is going on at the moment was really predicted to some degree back in 1991 when two authors, Bill Strauss and Neil Howey, uh, wrote a book called The Fourth Turning. And I was kind of flicking through the book today and I found something really interesting on page 165 where they discuss how this fourth turning or back in 1991 when they wrote it, by the way, 30 years ago, they were talking about the fourth turning coming in about 2005. I think now, in retrospect, they would say that it started in 2008. Of course, there's always a little bit of give and take when, when they come to these dates. But just listen for a second. Allow me to just read a few sentences from, from the book. And it goes on and says, sometime around year 2005, perhaps a few years before or after, America will enter the fourth turning. America will be very different, a very different society than in the late 1920s when the last crisis catalyzed. The nation will be more affluent, enjoy better health, possess more technology, encompass a large and more diversified or diverse population, and command more powerful weapons. But the same could be said about every other unraveling era society compared to its predecessor. They were not exempt from the seculum, nor will we be. They're explaining this in 1991, and they talk about how could this 30, you know, 30 years from when they wrote the book actually occur, and listen to what they write as one of the possibilities. This is their words. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention announced the spread of a new communicable virus. The disease reaches densely populated areas, killing some, Congress enacts mandatory quarantine measures, 
the president orders the National Guard to throw prolific condrons around unsafe neighborhoods. Mayors resist. Urban gangs battle suburban militants. Calls mount for the president to declare martial law. Of course, I think this is uncannily close to what we are seeing right now, which is why, of course, I don't think we can ignore this. Now, of course, this week was also defined a little bit by the Fed coming out on Wednesday with a little bit of realistic news, so to speak. I mean, they were predicting unemployment at the end of this year at 9.5%, even though I think most people think it's going to be higher, but still. And of course, they were very quick to get criticized by the White House for that. But it did lead to kind of a little bit of a a little bit of action in the markets, a 6% drop in stocks the day after. And frankly, in light of what I just read about the fourth turning and that kind of crisis being predicted, which, by the way, is going to stay with us until 2030, actually, this kind of suggests to me that we may be in for the next leg down, at least when you see what's going on in, in the various markets. And of course, we also saw the volatility Again, this week took a a decisive move to the upside. So that was long, maybe to some people, a little bit of a weird introduction, Moritz, to to your week in trend. But nevertheless, I think we have to be very open-minded at the moment uh, with what's going on. Lots of things going on, and it's interesting to follow along, as you say, Niels. I enjoyed the book, The Fourth Turning. I've read it a couple of months back. It's a long book. It's sometimes a little heavy to read, but the foresight and the way, you know, the research that they have done, the two authors, is, um, I think, magnificent. It's, you know, the book is one of a kind. There's there's not one of, you know, another of those books out there. So it's worth a read. Anyhow, back to the facts, back to the, to the life of a trend-following trader in the current environment. I've had two down weeks in a row, as people may remember me mentioning on that podcast. And this past week, some relief, uh, up close to a percent, um, still down for the month, and I'm a little bit down for the year, close to flat, but the numbers are slight red. What has worked? Some of the long bond positions, which we still have on, produced some good gains, especially being long the US 10-year and long the Canadian bonds. That worked really well. Short crude, short lean hawks, short coffee, short cotton, all of that produced gains. And on the losing side of things, long cocoa, short copper, long OJ and long rice, that was a significant loss. So portfolio is changing. I'm getting some trades, some exits of uh, winning positions, some exits at a full loss, you know, made them up, entered the trades. And then a couple of days uh, later, I'm kind of like I'm out of them again, which is reflected in this market's volatility. So we'll we'll see how the next couple of weeks pan out. Absolutely. I mean, before we go to Rob, I mean, of course, it's uh, interesting to hear that you had a, a tough time in rice this week, but they are actually called rough rice. So I guess uh, that there is some irony in that. Rough time and rough rice. It's, it's a volatile market. It had a massive run up in the past couple of weeks and boom, it collapsed. <laughs> for the week, by the way, it's down 22% for the week. Yes. I mean, you know, we've had a couple of those. Remember, Niels, at the beginning of the year, Palladium, and we've, you know, we've had a couple of lean hogs last year, I think, had this like 60% or whatever it was move. So 22%, yeah, you know, in in, in the bigger scheme of things, we've seen that before. But yes, it is quite significant.
Rob, of course, um, you've had the benefit of a couple of weeks or a few weeks since you were last with us. Uh, so maybe a few more things has happened on your side, even though a lot of the weeks since you were here last were very similar in kind of the market action, you know, relentless stock market rallies until this week, I guess. So how has it been for you and where where do you stand, so to speak? So since I was last with you guys, I'm also down. I've got some very precise numbers today, which I'll explain why in, in a bit, but I'm down 64 basis points since I last saw you, or exactly four weeks ago, in fact. Over the last seven days, again, a much better picture, up just under 4%, 394 basis points. I'm trying to think of an illusion like the, the, the rough rice. So my biggest market was euro dollar. The next market that was very profitable was, was uh, gas. So I guess my gas positions floated upwards in the P&L. That's the best I can do. Sorry, I think the rough rice gag was better, to be honest. Lost a bit of money in um, Aussie dollar and lost a bit of money in uh, the European V stocks, uh, the European VIX effectively, as I was short. And obviously that went into risk off mode and, and rallied. And so I had to close that position. So yeah, as Moritz says, a, a week when things kind of looked better. So I guess the, the, the trend following portfolios generally probably still have a bit of a risk off bias and will tend to do a little bit better in the, in the risk off weeks than the risk on weeks. But um, yeah, I'm still up for the year, I'm almost 9%. So um, I think given given how exciting it's been, I think it's pretty reasonable, really. That's very reasonable, I would say, very respectable. And that's just the trend-following part, or is that the full portfolio? That's just my, my futures trading that includes yeah. carry and, and uh, trend-following, a bit of mean reversion. It, it's not my, my kind of long-only investments, which I've said before, I try and avoid looking at too often. And, and that's particularly true this year, obviously. <laughs> but just out of curiosity... Given the fact we've had this V-shaped recovery in equity markets in general, from a long-only side, but I, I don't, I don't think you're long all the time, right? You can be neutral, I guess, or from memory, but maybe I'm wrong here. Yeah, I, I tend to scale my position between right. kind of a sort of something that looks a bit like an 80/20s equity bond portfolio in terms of risk, down to something that's that's more like 50/50. Okay. So even when I'm kind of pretty risk off in a pretty risk off mood i still have a a reasonable size allocation to equities i've kind of participated in some of the bounce back but not all because i did scale my risk back and i've i've, I've not been adding to it that quickly as the rally's been happening because the signals are still not that bullish right so uh, so yeah i've certainly not participated in all of the rally but neither have i completely sat on the sidelines i think it's fair to say yeah no, i mean what's really interesting about this um this rally, and by the way, I should actually say something in Danish today. Now you can you think I've completely lost it, but I noticed yesterday that our little podcast is you know number two of all podcasts on on investing in Denmark. I mean that's pretty significant, and I know the one that's number one because I was on it this week, and that's a massive podcast, by the way. So yeah, we we certainly super grateful for the Danish uh, listeners tuning in every week, but of course. It goes to everyone around the world. But anyways, it is interesting. And I was asked about this on, on my interview on this podcast because they're really interested in where the market's going to go. And this was recorded on Tuesday, so before we saw the 6% sell-off. So I had to dig in and do a little bit of research. And what's really interesting is because I think people have been a little bit confused by the fact that the Nasdaq made new all-time highs this week. As if... This bear market we saw earlier this year, it's all over, we're fine, you know, now we're making new all-time highs. I just want to caution one thing, and that is that this is exactly what happened in 2000, where the Dow peaked in January, 
and the Nasdaq didn't peak until March. So it was much later in making its final all-time high before it lost 87%. Same thing happened in 2007. Uh, there the Dow peaked in early October and the Nasdaq didn't peak until the 31st of October. And actually you can go back in time and find the same picture in, a, in back in the 60s, even though it wasn't called the Nasdaq back then, but there were some indices that were kind of different from the broader indices. So I just think it's really interesting this week and what's going on in general. So I was curious to know, Rob, given this rally, and I know you're focused probably on the UK, which hasn't been as strong in terms of the rally. You're not back to full exposure to the long side on, on your stocks, are you? Definitely not, no. If you were to think about my stock exposure on a sort of one to five scale, where one is about as bearish as I get, which is still exposed to stocks, and five is kind of very, having almost entirely stocks in my portfolio, but a little bit of bonds for diversification, I'm probably about a two out of five, I'd say. Oh, cool. Because as, as, as the Maurice was saying about changes in positions, I mean, clearly a rally, what we've seen in many markets or a V-shaped change in many markets for the last six, seven, eight weeks. Clearly, it has an you know it has an impact on on trend following positions as well. I mean, we have to reduce some of those shorts when the market rallies as well. And I did notice, and we'll talk maybe about this a bit later. I did notice there were quite a few people out again criticizing trend followers and saying that we are causing some of these big moves and and all of that good stuff that usually comes out. But it certainly is kind of true that I think some exposure on the short side has been reduced. And of course, it wouldn't surprise me if that happens just before the next leg down, which won't be great from a trend following perspective. On the other hand, I do think trend followers, to some extent, are still maybe slightly short overall equities. But just to round off this little introduction on, uh, you know, with, with, with how this week happened or played out. On our side, we saw kind of a complete reverse picture from the week before. Last week, so not this week, but last week, we had something like 45 markets out of 55 losing money. This week, we had 40 markets out of 55 making money. So complete reverse picture, really. A fixed income, by far, doing the heavy lifting. But um, energy did okay. Actually, stock markets did okay once they sold off. Going back to their bigger trends, that certainly helped us out. The only thing that lost money for us was volatility because of this sudden reversal. So it caught our volatility model a little bit on the wrong side, but nothing too bad. Still very solid week for us this week. Anyways, enough about that. Let's jump into some of the interesting topics. I don't know. I mean, I know you, Rob, always have some interesting ping things to bring up, but let me just kick it off with something that might be a little bit relevant to what we've already spoken about. And that this thing about speed. And I wanted to hear your reaction to this. I was watching a, a very good webinar, by the way, by Fish and Capital this week. They talked about the how trend following had coped in uh, Q1 mainly, but maybe also April and May. And um, one of the things they showed, which I thought was really interesting, and it it goes to the point about the difficulty we has as managers to pick the right speed or the right time frame. And let's just talk about this in terms of look back period. I mean, so how long do we go back in time when we generate signals in terms of the data? So the look back period. And what they showed was that they had done a study where they found three look back periods seemingly very similar, 72 days, 76 days and 80 days, very close to each other. 
those three look back periods, and this is a little bit from memory, so I apologize if I don't get it completely right, but I think directionally I'm right on this one. They had the same performance in Q4 of 2018 when we had the last bear market, right? So those three timeframes, pretty similar in time, pretty similar in performance. But this time around, very different performance. So the 72-day look-back period was actually profitable by a couple of percent over this Q1 period. The 76 lost a bit and the 80-day lost more. Probably overall, the range was from plus two to minus two or thereabouts. And I think that's really interesting, right? Because it's one of those things that we always have to deal with. What is the right time frame? And investors, by the way, who are listening to us today, I mean, they have to pick the right managers and and try and make an informed decision as to how sensitive our models are to various things. On top of that, you can't just look at the fact that this relates to one market. This was just looking at stocks. But I think, um, certainly I'm not entirely sure whether it was for the whole portfolio or for stocks only. But also you have to take into account that we trade many different markets. So although we may not do so well in one market or one sector, we, um, we could do well in other sectors. So I just want to throw that out to you guys and get some reactions, some thoughts. Because I think a lot of our listeners, both those who invest in managers, but also those who try and do it themselves, it's one of those things that, that is tough to get right. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised. I didn't see the presentation, but I would imagine, and I could be wrong, that they'd evaluated this using possibly simple moving averages and a binary system, in other words, either fully in or fully out. If with that kind of system, then a small difference in the look back could make quite a big difference to your performance because you imagine you've got a 72-day and even a 73-day look back and it just so happens that 72 days ago there was a big move in the market and we have seen the big moves in the market and we've also seen very choppy markets where the market's been down 6% on one day and up 6% on the next day in, in equities, which are big moves. It's very possible that lookbacks, which are very similar, could have completely different signals in, in that environment. Now, that's not true if you use, firstly, um, an exponentially weighted moving average, because that smooths out the effect of the of the of these big movements, especially if they happened kind of a couple of months ago, but then they've got quite a small weight. And the other thing is, if you're, if you're trading continuously rather than in a binary way, which is something I want to talk about in some more detail in this, in this podcast actually later, then you know you're less sensitive to the, the signal either going just above or just below the zero line, which will make a big difference to your position. Now, when I've looked at the correlation of moving averages that, that are very close together, exponentially weighted and continuous, I found that for something like, I don't know, 72, 76 and 80 days, the correlation is probably going to be like 0.99 or maybe even higher. It's going to be, going to be very, very similar indeed. And now, of course, correlation is a, it's a linear measure of how things move together. It's also, it also takes an overall average. It doesn't look at specific situations. I mean, you can have a 99% correlation between two things. That doesn't mean that there'll be times when they, they can do something that's completely different. And if you cherry pick the data, especially at times when things are moving around a lot, then you will see that. So for me, the main lesson of, of, of that analysis, assuming that they've done what I think they've done, is to be a little bit careful of things that are, that are really simple. Now, 
we like simplicity, we like robustness, and Moritz, I'm sure, is going to defend simple systems in a minute because he's a, he's a big fan of making things really simple. But, but this is a lesson showing that sometimes the really simple systems can be a little bit, I guess, flaky and can kind of small difference in the parameters can make quite a big difference. Whereas you make things just a little bit more complicated, you can just bring a bit more robustness in there, and then it won't matter if your moving averages are slightly different. And before Moritz does defend that, and by the way, I think the other lessons that I just want to add to that is, of course, that you can't just pick one time frame, right? You need to have many different ones. But anyways, Moritz? I agree with what Rob is saying here on the moving averages and those binary type of indicators. You know, you can have the instance where even though they're closely together, they produce different results on a given day. And the more data you feed those type of indicators, the greater the likelihood that at some point in time, you will get a different signal, even though the moving averages are very close together, right? I think the important takeaway for me in all of that is that people need to be aware of what we call noise. You can find any indicator or any type of system. And if you feed it enough data, I mean, there's always some noise in there. And sometimes the 72 day moving average or the 72 breakout will go out or will go off and the 76 does not. Whereas usually they, they trigger together at the same time. So only because this happens now doesn't mean that you should expect it to happen all the time. It has happened now. Okay, fine. I think what helps here is to have, you know, take a step back and take a, take a look at the longer term statistics and trade results of your system and see what a 72 day, let's say moving average does or what a 200 day moving average does or what's 250 day moving average or whatever type of length you're using, moving average does to your system and how you would feel about that system and whether you'd be able to follow that system along and how the system's characteristics would change if you apply it in the same way across all the markets. What does it do to your drawdown? Will you be able to live through longer term drawdowns and more severe drawdowns if you're using longer dated moving averages or longer term breakouts as opposed to trading more frequently and having shorter dated breakouts and shorter term moving averages? It is at the end of the day, a matter of taste and it's also a matter of capital because you could also say, I'm agnostic to all of that, I want trend following as a whole, and therefore I'm going to trade like an ensemble method using all of those statistics, all of those timeframes, all of those indicators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously that requires a very large amount of capital. If you want to trade at least one contract with each timeframe, with each strategy type, signal type, indicator type, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then we're really talking millions and millions and millions of dollars to be able to do that. And then you can get like the aggregate type of thing, you know, all time frames, very diversified, all of that. Now, I don't think we're definitely not me on, on, on a personal trading side of things. I'm not doing that. You know, everybody has a limited amount of capital. So I need to focus on things that work for me, things that I feel comfortable with, time frames that I think I can follow along with and which make sense to me. And I also need to understand that if there is noise, and there's always noise, fade the noise. Don't worry about it. It's one trade. You know, it's one noisy trade. It'll come back. We'll do another thousand trades. The noise will at some point filter out of the system. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I think it's a good illustration they did, actually. Of course, probably very few managers would trade timeframes that close anyways. But it's kind of interesting to, uh, to see these small, uh, how small, seemingly small differences can make bigger PL differences but it points out one or it highlights one thing 
which again, I'm not so sure whether people fully appreciate. And that is that every year, between seemingly similar trend followers, you have huge return dispersion. And I think from memory, and I can't remember if it's this webinar or another webinar I watched, people were talking about the average dispersion between managers from the best to the worst is something like 30% every year, which is huge, right? Especially if you're used to looking at like index funds where they track each other within a percent or whatever. So it is huge, which is why, of course, it's important to not only understand the differences between managers, to have an idea of what to expect. It's not just about time frame and speed. It's also about the markets they trade that will have a big impact on performance as well. And of course, it's also why we don't necessarily ever advocate that you just pick one trend follower. I mean, sometimes you can only pick one and you want to do that carefully, right? But it does make sense in many respects to have two or three. I know some people are advocate for more but you know i think two or three can get you a, a long way in terms of diversifying your trend following portfolio one more point then before we move on which is probably a good exercise to do if you've got the technology and you're concerned about whether your system is robust to noise as, as moritz says is to deliberately add noise to your inputs in other words take your your price curves and just add a little bit of random noise to them and just see what effect that has on, on your backtest performance. You'll end up producing essentially a distribution of sharp ratios of your, your backtests for different different random runs. And just increase the noise. And if your systems are robust, then a little bit of noise is not going to affect your, your performance that much. It'll affect it a little bit. But, you know, you're not going to go from having a system with a, with a sharp of 1 to a system with a sharp of minus 1 just by adding a little bit of noise. If that happens, that suggests that you, you probably are running a system that's a little bit too sensitive to, to what's going in. Maybe it's over-parameterized. I like that idea. I actually do that. I, I do add a little bit of noise. So just a random, a random subtraction or addition, for instance, to prices, right? Every day, every week, something like that. And then have a look at the curves again and plot the new curves against the original curve that you have. And you can see kind of like a cone, it's a distribution, and you will see where you fit. And whether, you know, if at the end of the day, if your curve, if your original curve is the one that's on top, right, and all the other ones are underneath it, then you know, well, you're very sensitive to noise, right? But if it just spreads around, then yeah, you have the path that you have, the system that you've chosen is one out of many. Yes, I mean, it will be impacted by noise, but noise is really noise and it's not going to impact the true uh, philosophy or premise of your system. By the way, I, I like the idea of resampling trades. I'm not sure if uh, you know what, what that does, but just changing the order of trades, you know, and see uh, what different path you get, you know, if you take more losing trades in a row as opposed to, you know, the original path that you took in history. I think this is uh, very informative and allows you to get a better understanding and feeling for the worst times of your system. Yeah, and I was just going to say that off air during the week, at least you and I were talking a little bit about how relatively simple breakout systems, because we touched on this uh, maybe with Jerry when he was on last, that this year, seemingly simple systems, very, very simple breakout, for example, systems have actually done really well. 
But again, it goes back to this point that it's always different. So it could do really well this year. It doesn't mean it's going to be the best methodology next year. Of course. Um, but in the long run, you certainly also found in your research, Moritz, that, and this resonates a little bit when, when we had the talk with Eric Crittenden a, a few weeks ago when he said, mm -hmm. how did I decide on what kind of trend following to put into my blended product? Because he wanted to blend it with long equities and he did a lot of studies, a lot of research, and found that actually the simpler system or the simplest type of systems were better for that purpose. Yeah, and uh, I had an email exchange with uh, Jerry this week, and um, uh, Niels, I should send him the information I sent you yesterday on those, you know, one of the simple systems. That I think the observation that I uh, can make is that some of the real, let's just in quotes call it simple stuff, right? Trend following 101, 100-day breakout, right? buy the 100-day breakout, sell the 50-day, whatever, something like that. But no additions, no overlays, no vol control, no fancy value at risk, no maximum portfolio risk, no this, that, or the other thing. Just the, the crude bare and butter of that, right? Yes, I mean, in the last couple of years, it's been, uh, it's been a relatively rough ride. But then again, step back a little and have a look at the chart that you're seeing for the last like you know 30 years or something like that and it's still pretty cool and you know this year those systems they perform really well so it is um amazing to me that if you have the stamina to follow through if you have the patience even with the simplest things they tend to be there and make you money in the long run now of course, when you go through the period 2014, 2018, 19, right, and, you know, most trend-following systems of that sort have a relatively difficult time, then the researcher in us goes, oh, I need to change things, right? This hasn't been performing so well, so let's do a couple of things in order to get that equity curve, move up again, and, you know, add a little bit of this and add a little bit of that, and that helps improve things, but always be mindful of that. A little bit of all control, maybe more. So a little no. bit of all control. Okay, okay, yeah, let's not um, go there today. <laughs> and I, I, I think I think it will work if you do it um, more than daily. I think on a minute basis, it's probably a good thing to do. But uh, I'll let you know when I found it. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> but I think again, just making that point, I think if you look at it on a standalone basis, like as I think Eric used the ex example of. If you get a dish and it's all made up and it's all blended, all the ingredients blended together, it tastes lovely, it looks nice, that's great. But if you were to be served those ingredients one by one, you're going to look at them and say, you know, I'm, I'm, am I going to eat the raw onion and am I going to read, you know, it wouldn't taste so nice. And it's the same thing. You were saying that these simple systems may not have done so well the last five years. Well, we know that had you blended it with equities, you would have been fine because they've been flying, right? So... It's all about how you see the various components. Rob, what say you to all of this? Any? Yeah, well, you know, I like things. Oh, you jump to the next topic. You've got another topic, <laughs> I'm sure, lined up. I, I have. I, well, it's kind of related, actually. So a um, little bit of background. So I'm always moaning about not having enough capital to trade with now that I'm just trading my own money, of course. And um, I've been thinking about um, ways of using my capital more efficiently. And what, one way you can do that is, and I sort of do this a little bit at the moment, I'm thinking of potentially doing it in a more extreme way, is to have in your, your universe a lot of instruments. So maybe, you know, 50, 100 futures markets, possibly even more, maybe 150. 
if I get down to the kind of the milk and the kind of crazy stuff that Moritz is, is trading, you know. But I only have capital probably to trade about 35 futures markets, I would say. And I really only have enough capital to perhaps have positions in 25 of those at any one time. So one thing that kind of theoretically maybe makes sense is to say, well, I've got 150 markets. I'm going to calculate a, a signal on each of those. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick the markets that have the strongest signal. And those should be the ones that make the most money. And in practice, I'm going to do something a bit fancier than that because, you know, unlike Moritz, I like to make things a little bit more complicated uh, where, I where I think the complication is justified. So I'm going to have a little bit of an optimization process that, that looks at the correlations and basically puts together essentially, you know, being technical for a second, the best the portfolio with a minimum tracking error to the portfolio I'd have if I had unlimited capital. But anyway, that's not what I want to talk about today. So it is coming back to this idea that theoretically, the idea of how strong your signal is should, should influence the size of your position. So I spoke earlier about binary versus continuous trading. So um, if we just think about that in, in terms of moving averages, which we, you know, we all understand very well, the strength of your signal is essentially going to be the difference between you know, your, your fast moving average and your slow moving average divided by the, the volatility. And, uh, you know, if you're thinking about carry, if you say, say, you know, FX carry, which again is the one everyone understands, it's basically going to be the interest rate differential between your two currencies divided again by, by risk, because you, you want to kind of get everything back into risk-adjusted terms. This kind of brings up this idea of something that theoretically makes sense. Empirically, I've looked at it before, but I was looking for a, a second and a third opinion from you guys, really. Do you think it is valuable? And this is something I've always done in my own systems. And I, I, I know when I've tested it, it seems to add value a little, you know, quite a bit of value. doesn't double your sharp ratio, but, but seems to increase it a bit. This idea of, of, of essentially using the strength of, of your forecast to decide how, how big your position should be. And then the second question, and this, this does relate to, to how Moritz likes to trade, I know, once you have that position on, should you then adjust it if your signal strength changes, if you feel more or less confident about, about the forecast, which is something that's hard to do, by the way, if you're just operating with a simple stop loss system, because, you know, essentially you don't want to complicate things. You've got one way of exiting your position. So, you, you know, it's going to be going to be harder then to adjust the size of that position. So, so yeah, that, this whole topic of, is something that I, is kind of very relevant to me at the moment with thinking about redesigning my system in this way. And I just was curious about what your guys take was it because I know a lot of our listeners probably just use binary systems without even considering that there's an alternative so it's probably worth talking about happy to go first but I'm not sure if I can really add a lot of to the to the discussion I understand what you're talking about Rob but um, I haven't tested it yet I haven't researched it yet so I you know cannot offer you the a good opinion or feedback on it maybe I can make two points and hopefully they will help a little bit Point one is, to me, it is important, and, and this may be just for my way of thinking, that when I enter a position, at the point I enter the position, I have a defined risk. When I, what I mean by defined risk is I know where I'm going to get out of the position before I even get in. Or when I get into the position, I know where I'm going to get out. And if that stop is going to be hit, then I know what my loss is going to be. Right? And... I really want to have that as an anchor for all of what I do in my trend following portfolio, which is why 
things like, yeah, let's change the position because of volatility or some forecast has changed or, you know, some correlation measures have changed or, you know, those type of things. I don't like them that much because that will end up changing that risk budget that I had for that trade, right? And it will give it more or less. So that's one point. The other thing that I, and this is an observation, maybe a, um, a flyby type of observation, but what I've been able to do is, let's say I have a, a universe of 100 markets, just for argument's sake, say, right? And at the end of every year, so December 31st, I'm going through all the markets. And what I'm doing is I'm calculating the sharp ratio for each of those 100 markets. And I will just rank them. I will rank them from best sharp ratio without any trend following system, just the just the pure long only buy and hold type of performance of those markets. I will rank them by sharp ratio. And I will then restrict for the next year my trend following system to trade in only the 50 markets that had the highest sharp ratio in the past year. I'm not sure what exactly the reason is, but the performance of the trend following system increases. Now, what do I want to forecast from that? What is the conclusion of that observation yeah okay so there has been a market that has had a higher sharp ratio in the past year first of all that doesn't mean it's going to have a higher sharp ratio in the next year right a lot of the bond markets have high sharp ratios we know that sharp ratio or information ratio is always a a matter of two components there's return and there's risk so is the sharp ratio high because it has just uh, performed so spectacularly in the return space or has the volatility been very low or the combination of the two i don't know but I can just, you know, looking at the data is that there is the observation that yes, this this would be an addition that would help my trend following trading performance, but I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure what to make make out of it, to be honest. Interesting ideas. First of all, I would say I prof- probably look at things somewhat of a mix of what, what's been said so far. So the idea of using signal strength in general that's something we do and have done always but expressed in terms of position size right so again if you have a signal that is stronger if you have two markets and one has a full signal let's call it that and the other one has half a signal yeah i mean we would only have a half position in the one that has half the signal strength theoretically at least so I do think that is relevant. I, th- I do think you should do that. Could you, could you change that methodology to saying, I only want to trade those markets with the strongest signal? I mean, you can, but I wonder whether you might introduce, when you exclude things, you also exclude the opportunity for that market to change from being a difficult market to being a really great market. If there's one thing we've learned in trend following is that you never know what's going to happen. So I'm kind of a little bit cautious about excluding things. I understand the challenge you have, Rob. Capital is limited and therefore you have to define your universe. But actually, we have to do the same, right? We don't trade every single market on the planet. We trade 55 markets. So we have made those decisions as well. But I think we feel good enough about the fact that we have a broad, diversified portfolio, across 55 markets. But of course, we would have missed the rough rise advance earlier this month, but we would also have missed last week's rough rise, so to speak, and and so on and so forth. There's always going to be something that's going to move and you're not going to catch it. And that's fine. As long as you're 
happy with the markets you trade and and the backtest you get from that. I think that's that's the important thing. But I still wonder whether there is a different, I mean, so again, depending on how often you make that calculation, how often you allow, if we think about it as a, let's say in the, the football world or the soccer world for our American friends, it's like setting out a team, right? Every week you have to put out your best team. And sometimes you have people, at all times, you're going to have something on the bench, right? You're going to have players on the bench, so you can't play all players. And in your case, Rob, you can't play all markets either, right? So you have to have a way to to make substitutions. So, so I get the challenge. How you then go about doing it and how often you make that. So to combine it a little bit with what Moritz said, I think it's very interesting what you do at the end of each year. I would, though, think that I would do it differently, though. And that is, instead of just... I, I don't do it. I've researched oh, it. Oh, you researched it. Okay, all right. I'm not applying it right okay, now. Okay, okay, cool. Interesting. Because what I would say, then, is instead of just looking at the market sharp ratio, I actually think you have to apply your strategy on top of it because even if a market has a high sharp, for whatever reason, when you apply your trend following, it doesn't. it may not give you the best output because it depends on exactly you know how those market moves occurred. Although I, I get the point that it looks at volatility and the market moves and, and all of that, but I still I would have thought you need to apply your trends following system. And that comes back to something I, I was involved in many years ago. And that is the idea. It's a different way. It's not about signal strength, i.e. trading more in the markets that has more signals, because this was, again, with limited capital, so we couldn't do all the fancy things we do at Don. But... What we did do back then was we looked at the profitability of the markets and we allowed slightly bigger positions in those markets that had, over a period of time, shown to be more profitable. Because if you do that on a systematic basis, as a market then might get out of its you know, range trade and start trend to trend again, that's going to show up in your P&L and you're going to start giving it more weight. But in a systematic space, you're not making a call on whether it's a good market to trade or a bad market to trade. You let the data and the PL dictate that. So we would do that every single day when we generated signals and, and all of that. We would look at the PL back in time. And once it started to move up the ranks, it would get a higher risk allocation within defined limits. So I kind of like some of both of what you say and, and how you combine it in total, I think is a really good challenge for all of us but i'm thinking about it a little bit differently maybe to what was explained so far yeah i haven't explained it very well actually <laughs> so no, well, i don't um, know you may have i mean no, no. yeah so well, actually so. the the market selection will basically be happening on a daily basis which is also okay. how often i normally rebalance my portfolio so it would be what will be happening on a day-by-day basis is it might have be holding a positions in a bunch of markets and then one of those markets I'm not holding, its forecast has got stronger below, above some threshold. That isn't predefined, but you can think about it like that. And at that point, that market will come into the portfolio and a market whose forecast has been weakening will, will fall out again. So it's a little bit different from what you and Moritz have, have both proposed. I mean, I But have you done the analysis when you talk about signal strength and trying to equate that to profitability? Have you made that connection? Is there a clear linear connection between those two things there is a connection so i would say that that i if i go from a a binary system to a continuous system 
So that's not not quite the same as what I've been talking about now. It's about running a kind of standard CTA system binary versus running a standard CTA system continuously without changing anything else. The sharp improves by roughly 20 to 25%. In other words, if you started with a sharp of say um, 0.6, you'd go to a sharp of about to about 0 0.7, 0 0.72, something like that. Now, I do find um, the ideas about kind of long, longer term allocation to markets interesting to discuss. Moritz, I'm wondering if the sharp ratio over the previous 12 months of the underlying market is in effect a crude long term trend signal for that market. So it might be what you're essentially doing in that research is allocating more to markets that have a strong long term trend signal. Do you do that on the short side as well? So if something's gone down a lot, as a yeah, big so negative sharp ratio, would you do I'm, that? I'm taking the absolute. I mean, yeah. you know, normally a negative sharp ratio is not defined because if you have a negatively returning asset, then the sharp ratio becomes, you know, it's uh, it, it should be NA, right? Yeah. Because otherwise you're getting a benefit for higher volatility in negative space. So, but I'm taking the absolute value of that. So yeah. I would have a, a market that goes down, 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 down with a low volatility would have a high negative sharp ratio of which I take the absolute value and then, you know, rank it as well highly. And and I agree, it it may be picking up those, you know, trends which have been which have been working well in the past year and then kind of like double down on these. But can I just throw something in here? And again, I don't I don't have any of the data of course, but if I think about the markets we trade, right? And using the methodology that Moritz talks about, I would imagine that equity markets would rank really high. I mean, for the last few years, they've done gone up, relatively low volatility, et cetera, et cetera. But then when I look at how we fared in equities compared to other sectors, it's not where I would have wanted to be mostly engaged because equities has been really difficult from a trend-following perspective to trade. And it's where we're always going to have the most exposure just before the big crisis, because we always think about crisis as being equities, right? So, again, I, I, if you don't apply your trend-following system on top to see what the actual output is of that market, I'm not so sure that you get the right output. I'm a bit cautious about the idea of taking, say, last year's sort of trend-following performance for a particular market and using that as, as an allocation device. Because actually, trend-following performance tends to be a little bit mean-reverting at that time horizon. In other words, bad years in trend-following strategies tend to be followed by good years, and, and vice versa. Regression at that to the mean time horizon. Um, so, for example, people who do things like trade the equity curve of their system. In other words, if their system has been doing badly, start to un allocate less money in it, and vice versa. Um, that doesn't tend to do very well because of this this phenomenon. Um, now, I think you were more on on the right lines, um, Niels, when you were talking about using longer term performance. So, I do actually myself allocate risk weights to um, the markets and the sharp ratio of their trend following performance, but for all of history, essentially over long long, at least ten years, ideally thirty, forty years, if I've got the data will actually have some influence on the portfolio weight. But because it's quite a noisy signal, you, you can't really infer that much from past sharp performance. It doesn't have a huge a huge effect on, on the weights. Things like correlation will, will have a, a bigger effect. So I'm, you know, if a market's done really, really well 
and it's diversifying to my overall portfolio because it's quite different, then yes, it'll get a bigger allocation. But just doing really well won't necessarily increase um, the weight that much. The other thing you said, Rob, which I agree with, that certainly that's what we've seen, is that continuous models tend to do better than binary models, but not all the time. So this year it's not, but usually it is. So again, we need to have this massive structural diversification on all levels from systems to markets to timeframes to everything really, which again is a huge challenge if you have limited capital. And, you know, the other thing is you don't need to get it perfect, right? I mean, we're not, you know, we're not, not talking about perfection. There's always going to be a system that's better. What we're trying to encourage people to do is to get exposure to trend following because it's better than having no exposure to trend following. So I just want to make that point not to discourage people saying, oh, I can't do that, I can't do that. But, you know. I agree. There's there's always, the, the, the grass is always greener somewhere else, no matter where you are, right? One question to both of you with these continuous systems, I'm definitely not saying they're bad. You don't have any flat positions. Well, you could be close to flat. You can be very close to flat. Yeah, but you can never be flat. Or, you don't or, have or, to well, be flat. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to, do you? I'm not sure. I mean, I just, you know, I'm not saying this is in, in any shape or form bad. I just, you know, when I look at some of the charts and, uh, you know, some of the positions that I have in my systems, I sometimes step back and say, yeah, you know what? Uh, having a flat position is exactly what I want to have. I don't want to be in that market. That's been just chopping around, you know, up and down, up and down, producing vol and commissions and slippage and drag and all of that. Yeah, flat is the right position to have. So I'm I'm kind of happy with that. It's true what you say. Moritz, but when I think about it, let's just say you run a system with a certain AUM and, and your typical maximum position for a market is 500 contracts, for example. In a continuous system, you can certainly get to a point where you have five contracts, you know, long or short, where it, for all intents and purposes, it's like being flat. But you're right, getting to zero would probably be rare. But I don't think you need to, I don't think you need to worry about that. I think you can get flat enough, let's call it that. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, so as someone who hasn't got much capital, in fact, until the, the forecast reaches a certain strength, you will have no position on because you haven't got enough for even one contract. And in fact, a way actually that I currently run my system, again, to kind of leverage my capital more efficiently, is, is to do a more simple thing of this idea, which essentially is, unless the forecast reaches a certain absolute strength, I don't even think about putting position on. So even if I did have enough money for one contract, but if the forecast is really, really weak, like Moritz says, maybe the market's just really choppy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even bother putting that single contract on. In some markets, that means that the forecast really has to be quite strong before I put any kind of position on because the contract size is quite large. So you, it's kind of, you get to zero by the back door, but you know, if your position's normally 500, five lots is, is as good as zero. If your position like me is normally two, you know, five contracts, then then obviously it will be zero. It, it's it's really not making much difference. And you can make the same kind of let's call it filtering approach to the daily adjustments to your continuous system. You could just say, well, if the position size doesn't change by ten percent, I'm not going to make the change until next time it's ten percent different from my current position. So you can make it simple for sure. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, I do think there's nothing wrong with a simple binary system. I do think you can add a little bit of value by having a continuous system. There's nothing wrong with binary. The only thing to say is, if you are going to do the approach of saying, right, I'm going to set my trade up, set my risk up, 
stop loss exit. I've got defined risk. You just need to make sure that the forecast you've made is kind of aligned to your holding period. So you, you basically want to, if you're setting your stop such that you expect to be in the trade for a month, you want to be making sure that your position reflects what you think is going to happen to the price over the next month, because that's how long you expect to stay in the trade effectively. Yeah. I mean, we do both. We do. We have one binary, one continuous model, and I think it's a, it makes sense to, to mix I, I agree. I think the combination of these type of things, you know, whether or not you like those type of systems is a, is a different question altogether, yeah. right? But at the end of the day, we need to look at the hard data. And um, the observation that we can all make is that if we add those different types of systems together, you can slice and dice it in a, whichever way you want. You will get a portfolio that has a higher sharp ratio than the one that you had before if you put them mm. all together. Yeah, very true, very true. And it's, you know, like, if, so for instance, I, I have a system here that looks at time series momentum. Time series momentum is just, I'm, I'm not trading that personally. I just, you know, run this on paper data, right? Time series momentum is just, you know, you look at where the price is today and compare it to where the price used to be a couple of, say, months back. And uh, if the price has increased or if the market has increased in price, then you're long, otherwise you're short. And you can do that over different time frames. So I'm looking at three, six, nine, and 12 months. And you can now combine those to um, have a portfolio that is short term, say three month, medium term, six to nine month, and longer term, 12 month, right? And and, and just run it. And you know, the, the result is when, when you look at the output of that system, it looks like a trend following system. When I compare that to type of other type of breakout type of systems, I mean, over longer term time periods, it's essentially, it's close, put it that way, right? It, it does have meaningful differences at times. So for instance, um, when you look at the price behavior in the crude oil market this year, right? I mean, this, this market has been going down quite fast. And now the time series momentum system will say, well, definitely the one month is down, the three month is down, the six month is down, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's fully short. And the market has recovered a lot from, uh, you know, close to zero or 10, depending on what crude oil contract people have been trading all the way up to close to 40. And probably that system hasn't kicked you out yet. You're taking the full loss, the, the full loss of that rally. And, and I kind of like say, well, at what point is too much, too much of that loss? And if I have these type of breakout systems where I have a predefined stop and my risk budget controlled for in advance, then yeah, at some point I know exactly where I will be kicked out of that trade. And I'm not going to be just riding it all the way up on the wrong side because I'm following a continuous time series momentum system. Again, not saying it's bad. It is a matter of what you as a person and your stomach can tolerate in terms of heat and the way that your system works. Moritz, that's a great point. And I think I would add one thing, and I've never, I've not done the research, so this is just an opinion. I think with time series momentum systems, you need to trade them with dynamic vol adjustments, meaning that, for example, what would have happened this time around with energy, where you would have gotten short, you would have made money on the trade down, but as volatility exploded, you would have reduced your position, so you would have carried, you wouldn't have carried the same amount of contracts all the way back up again. I think you're right that if you were just sticking with fixed position size, then it may not yield the same output because, as you rightly say, you have stops that change maybe more dynamically, et cetera, in a binary system. But I think if you're doing time series momentum, you need something in there 
to handle the risk side a bit better. I see that point. And um, I actually thought about that and I had a look at the crude oil markets just through that lens, Niels. But remember, we had this gap in January or whenever it was or in March, yeah, February, when yeah. crude oil, February, when it dropped from, what was it, 45 to 32 or something yeah. like that, right? And this was only the beginning of the downtrend. Mm -hmm. But the, the volatility, of course, had exploded such that if you vault controlled that system, you would have reduced your position size substantially already then on the way down. So mm -hmm. you wouldn't have enjoyed that many of the gains on the downside as well. So it, it, it's a matter of timing. You know, does, does the maximum point of volatility occur at the same point as the turnaround? Right. And also it's a matter of how much look back period do you use for your volatility, Correct. right? Because your, your sensitivity needs to be taken into yes. account. All I can say is that's exactly what we do. And we made good money, but we didn't lose all of it on the way back up again. And that's, of course, because you are reducing your position size as the market moves in your favor. Um, but you're not going to zero, right? So so you are making money. You're right. I mean, this is why we talked earlier about the simplest system this year, where you just got in, stayed with a position. You would have made a killing in March. And we, we know some people who did that, right? And kudos yes. to those. But the give back can also be really tough with those systems. So it's a choice. Or you combine it. Do a little bit of both, right? Mm -hmm. Just want to make one point to make myself sound clever, which is that if you, if you have enough individual systems that are binary and you combine them, you'll get something that's effectively continuous. So, um, you mm. know, you, you, all your little individual crossovers, you can run those as a binary system. If you've got 20 or 30 or 40 of, the, of, of all of these binary systems, all different kinds, in the end, it'll effectively be a continuous system, even though the underlying components themselves are binary. Yeah. We've got about 15 minutes left on our conversation today. Rob, did we, because uh, it's going to be a few weeks before we hear your voice again, so I want to address your what's important to you right now. And I thought it was a great question. I like your thinking and uh, it's great that you want to bring these topics to us to debate. What else is on your to-do list at the moment? Yeah, so I'd said earlier that I had some very precise performance figures and I was going to explain why and, and also thinking about redesigning my system. So in, in effect, I'm currently implementing um, a sort of version two of my, my live trading system, which I've been running now for, for six years. So the old system has been retired, the new system is now running. I hadn't quite finished writing the new system code. I was forced into doing the upgrade earlier than I expected because my, my broker updated their API and totally broke all my code. So I had to kind of switch over before I was quite ready. So one implication of that is I've actually been um, trading manually. Very old school. So, you know, the, the, the everything's working perfectly, but I don't quite trust the, the auto trading component. I've, want to build in um, some you know, safeguards and, and robustness around that before I let everything just run by itself. So, so that, that's been kind of fun, actually clicking a mouse on a screen and haven't done that for a, for a few years. And so yeah, it's just about the wider topic of you know, how automated should a system be. So in an ideal world, would the system run completely automatically and you'd be on a beach somewhere? Or are you more the, the kind of person that, that likes to um, you know, have a lot of control over the process and, 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 and even to the extent of, of um, you know, trading manually and perhaps even, dare I say it, making a little tweaks to the trades that come out, 
I'm not saying that you guys commit that sin, but maybe there are some people out there who call themselves systematic traders but do do a little bit of tweaking of, of what comes out of the system. So, so yeah, it's it's an interesting topic, and to run the system completely automatically, you have to have a lot of faith in it. And um, also, you may argue that, and this is something that we did at AHL, perhaps in some markets, actually, you are better off having a human execute the trades because there are some markets that are even the, the best trading algorithms can't can't trade very well. So yeah, it's it's an interesting topic that that's very topical for me at the moment because I've I've run a system that's been pretty much fully automated for six years and I've now got this this hybrid system and I'm I'm just kind of thinking again on 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 uh, on the subject of how much automation is right. Well, I'm a little bit disappointed here you didn't implement voice so you could go, Alexa, buy 71 rough rice. December, please. That is way beyond my programming talents, uh, Niels. And also, <laughs> I'm a bit worried that Alexa might mishear me and, 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 and do oh, yeah. something completely you different. Delivered by Amazon. Well, yeah. they, they, you get delivered by Amazon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, 76. Physical, <laughs> physical delivery, suddenly you yeah. uh, get that knock on the door. <laughs> Anyways, I, th I, mean, I think... I mean, I, I'm sure Moritz has some some probably more clever thing to say about this. What I will say is that there are obviously a lot of school of thoughts, you know, even among sort of the the um, the bigger managers, how automated should you be? On our side, we want to see the order before we decide how to execute it, right? Because as you rightly say, certain markets may not be conducive to just doing an algo and also the right the time of the day and all of those things and maybe this could be all programmed i don't know but we certainly want to see and we we print every single order before we do it now that doesn't solve your problem if you want to go to the beach you don't want to do that right so i think that since you have experience good experience with being able to automate things fully so you can go away as long as you get all the reports that tells you if something is wrong or it shows you the order flow so you kind of can see What's going on? I don't know if if you can get to a point where you have no idea. I mean, where you don't worry about things and and you wouldn't need would need to to check what's going on. I don't know that that's a, a great thing either. I mean, you do want to know if something goes wrong, but I don't know. I think there can be something a little bit dangerous, especially because I have this sneaky feeling we're going to see more of these massive volatility spikes and higher volatility in general so having everything just automated without any humans i'm not so sure that's a great idea but what i will say is that for most trend following approaches though the trade frequency is pretty low and therefore it's something that is not necessarily a huge problem but for high frequency of course i understand that they have to do everything from box to box so to speak but I also think that there is evidence that, and, and I think we've seen it in the past, where just a little error in the code has led to huge losses. So I'm not a big fan of that as, a, as in general, but I, I understand that with high frequency, you have no choice. Yeah, two observations here. I mean, the, the institutional setting that I, I work in, there we focus much more on automation and having those processes from like, order entry or you know, signal generation all the way to you know trade reconciliation and booking as automated as possible but it's not in like you know there's also algorithmic trading regulation all of that so where you need to have circuit breakers and these type of things it is not completely hands-off there will be a human eye having a look at those type of things which i believe is important of course as you say niels 
the shorter term you get and it doesn't have to be high frequency trading if you ran like you know day trading type of systems where you know you get up you get a trade and it's executed at some point during the day because either a limit or a stop is hit and uh, you know the kind of like if done condition is that now you need to place a profit target or stop loss trade you don't want people to sit there and wait for that moment and then hurry and be nervous and you know put the trades in you want that to be done by a computer right but we're we're not running that so so it doesn't apply now i think what people may find more interesting is how i do it personally personally i think i've gotten to a point where every day every morning i can click a few buttons and get the outputs that i require now that hasn't been it took me a long time to get to that point where this is really only like you know a couple of minutes each day process and not like half an hour or an hour or two hours or something like that so i could do this i enjoy it it's five minutes in the morning right and i could go to the beach for instance if this is what i wanted to do right now what it does and what it allows me to do is it produces orders it has me it requires me to have a look at the portfolio which i know from the previous day i always spend a bit more time on the weekends to kind of like review the week and have a look at what the portfolio is and what trades i've done and what the positions have changed and what the risk is and those type of things but what i then do is i have a look at the orders and i can see oh yeah that those make sense they're kind of like i expect them you know they're, they're, they're matched with uh, what they were yesterday so yeah no surprises here and then i sent them via email in old-fashioned format to my broker and i think there's a benefit to that because now my broker has those orders and my broker needs to take care of those orders right so i'm not pointing and clicking with a mouse on interactive brokers where maybe my order will be cancelled because they have a system failure or something else happens or the market is limit up limit down or i don't know you know there's a million things that can happen in a trading day but I know that the order now sits with my broker and that the broker will take care of it. And if anything wild happens, you know, maybe the order cannot be placed or there's a system failure or the market's limit or there's an early closure or there's, you know, I mean, whatever the case may be, they will respond to me by email and say, Houston, we've got a problem or this is the situation. If I don't respond, they will call me. And they will call me until they get me on the phone and you know we can discuss what the situation is and i i like operating in that environment because it allows me like i, I do this in the morning i send them the orders i don't have to worry about it anymore i don't have to sit in front of the screen i don't do it i don't need to watch the markets i can really free my mind out of all of this if 99.5 percent of all days what happens is no problem absolutely everything runs smoothly I get back home in the evening, I find an email in my inbox, that, hey Moritz, thanks for the order today, uh, here are your fills. Yeah. And then I have an early look at my fills, uh, which I can then pick up from the equity runs and the statements the next day uh, to reconcile them. I feed that into my system, um, you know, to do all the bookings, et cetera, et cetera. But this, this is how I run it. And every once in a while, yeah, I uh, do get an email. It's like, hey, um, weeds limit down. We can't get short. What do you want to do? And we have a word about it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's worth paying a little bit extra for that kind of service. I'm going to just quickly go through the performance of where we are for the industry before we wrap up this week. These are numbers of, of Thursday. I think Friday was kind of a mixed day. I don't think much happened yesterday. 
But anyway, the VTOP 50 index is down just shy of 1% for June. Sorry, down 3.2% for the year. SOCGEN CTA index down 2% for June and down 3.34% for the year. The SOCGEN trend index down 2.8% in June so far, down 1.92% for the year. And the short-term traders index down 43 basis points in June so far, but up 3.22% for the year. I actually forgot to look at the bridge alternatives, but well, there we are. We'll look at that next week. MSCI World. Though I did look up up 77 point basis points for the month, down 8.23% for the year. I think those were the things we wanted to uh, bring out this week. Let's see if we may not surprise everyone with something new we have in store, maybe. We, at least we talked about something to do something completely brand new. So stay tuned and you'll find out what that might be. Any final thoughts? No, not here. My mind is completely empty and I'm ready to go to the beach. <laughs> of course. Well, with social distancing, I'm sure, since you are, you do live in the UK. Of course, so, uh, of course. Yeah, no, absolutely. If anyone uh, wants to check out the trend barometer each day or the daily market trends that I publish on the website, you can do so. If you go on and get a copy of the guide to some of the best books on investing, you can do so on the website as well. And if you have any questions for us, you can send them to info at toptradersonblog.com and we'll be happy to discuss those as quickly as we can. From Rob, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, have fun, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.